trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is the place, as I believe Brigham Young once said. Uh, he was talking about a different kind of place than I, want, I am. I'm talking about uh, this is the place where we gather to revel in wrong think. I do this on a daily basis. If you'd like to check out my website, it's thebrianhydeshow.com. And you will find archives of every thought that I've ever given utterance to or article that I've shared as well as my show notes. And I strongly encourage you to take a look at the show notes. I encourage you to look at them because I know there are people who are looking for good information sources, resources, if you will, for wrong thinkers that shed some light on what's happening in the world and do so in a way where it's not just spinning it to, to a way that is uh, tasteful to you or something that you agree with, but is actually something that can help you better understand what's happening as well as what you yourself can do. Again, thebrianhydeshow.com. Feel free to subscribe to my uh, show notes. Well, let's dive right in. And I, ironically, I'm telling you, check out the show notes for these really great articles. I'm just going to refer to one now, which I unfortunately did not include in today's show notes, but it would be worth your time to take a read. Alan Stevo, in his latest column on LewRockwell.com, talks about how you aren't like the rest and why that shouldn't surprise you. Now, this is not just Alan Stevo blowing sunshine up your skirt to, you know, make you feel good about yourself. He's recognizing that uh, there are three very distinct groups of people at play in society. You have hyenas, and, you know, forgive me for, for using this as an example, but um, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci is a perfect example of a hyena, cocky, glib, sure of himself, and, and corrupted to the core, ready to take advantage any chance that he gets. Most politicians, by the way, fit into that category as well. You also have sheep. And this doesn't mean that uh, the sheep are necessarily stupid or evil, but they're afraid. They're, they're timid. They, they prefer to be told what to do. They prefer to be shown where they should stand, well, six feet apart, what they should wear, put that mask on and so forth. And, and so they're, they're content with letting others take the responsibility of making heavy decisions. The third group, though, are the lions. And I'm going to suggest, and I believe Alan Stevo is making the point, if you give a damn about what's going on and you say, at some level, this just doesn't feel right, you, my friend, are a lion. And even though lions are an ultra minority in all times, that doesn't matter. In fact, he points out, as Mark Twain wrote, a single brave man can shout down a lynch mob of 10,000. Maybe you sense this, or maybe you, you kind of dread the idea of, well, what if I'm supposed to be one of those people who stands up when everybody else is, is moving in another direction? They're going to think I'm nuts. They're going to think I'm, I'm out of step or I'm somehow I'm bad for, for not going with the crowd. But that's what lions do. They don't think they're better than everybody else, but they definitely understand right versus wrong. They understand what their principles are. They will not compromise. And here's the cool thing. When a lion stands up and makes that stand for what is right, what is true, what is decent, other people find their courage. 
to awaken the lion within them. Alan Stevo puts it this way. He says, uh, well, there may never have been such an awful t- period of time as the one that we're living in. But the truth is, there may also never have been such a glorious period in time. I feel what he's saying. And I say that with the understanding. There's a lot of really challenging stuff that I see coming at us. And and frankly, it's, it's very concerning. I, I don't know how a person can truly, you know, be prepared for some of the the disasters, which some of which are engineered and others which may just come as a result of other people tinkering with with human nature. I think we have some really hard times ahead. But at the same time, I believe there are there's there's a very bright and glorious future ahead of us. But it's going to require enduring and and standing up during those hard times in order to get there. I believe you're one of those people. I think I'm one of those people who is supposed to do this. And it's not because, well, again, we're, we're better than anybody else. I think it's because God put us where we are. The pieces that are in motion were set in motion a long time ago, but they're coming together at exactly the right time and the right place where you can make a difference and I can make a difference. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds really lofty. You know, I may have lost you a long time ago on this, but I really believe there are people who are just dying to hear this message and hear that reassurance that, look, you're not crazy. There's something that's very important that you need to do and that I need to do, and we're going to be in the minority. We have to accept that. We're not going to be popularly, you know, lauded and appreciated and people showering money and gifts on us because, uh, gosh, these guys are just so great. More likely than not, they're going to be showering garbage on us and and accusations and smears and threats and so forth. But if you look historically at the people who have stood up and made a difference in times of crisis, that's the price they were willing to pay as well. What an honor to have the chance to stand in that kind of company. Not that it's easy, not that it's, you know, a fun, enjoyable experience, but because it's necessary and those turning points in history where, where true greatness has made the difference came because there were people like you who recognized deep down that it matters and that no matter what, I'm going to make that stand. Now, Alan Stevo's advice is look around you soberly. Okay, if you're wondering, what do I do? What can I do? He says, look around soberly, take stock, ready yourself for the biggest challenges that you can imagine. Then you accept challenges even bigger than that, challenges that felt out of your reach. And then, he says, independent of whether you win or lose in that immediate challenge, you use it to grow into someone better and bigger. In other words, no laurels rested upon, no spilt milk cried over, only quick acceptance of reality, quick growth into the best you can be, quick rising to the challenges life puts in your path. That's what is going to save the day. And I realize, you know, for some people, this is <clears throat> this is going to sound really weird and out there. And that's okay. Those aren't the people I'm talking to. I'm talking to you because to you it makes sense. That it's going to be hard. Yes, there's an easier way. Shut up, run with the crowd, blend in, you know, don't draw any attention to yourself. That's definitely the easier way. But in your heart, you know, you were born to do something greater than just blend into the crowd 
and to hide, you know, from, from criticism. So that's what I'm doing today is I'm encouraging you, embrace it. Look around you and realize even though our numbers are few, divine providence is on our side if we will humble ourselves and ask for help. All right. I kind of went off on a tangent here. And, and again, I'm sorry, I'm not including the, the, the uh, article that I'm referencing from Alan Stevo in today's show notes, but you will find it on lourockwell.com. Just Google up Alan Stevo's name. The article's called How You Aren't Like the Rest and Why That Shouldn't Surprise You. It doesn't take a majority of people all chanting in unison or marching in lockstep to make the kind of changes and inspire the kind of changes that need to be made and to correct the th- errors that need to be corrected. It just takes that tireless minority of people who have moral clarity and and the moral courage to stand up and be counted, even if it's painful, even if it requires in some ways separating themselves from polite society, even if it requires doing the exact opposite of what everybody else seems to be doing. Sometimes that is the right thing to do. And the company that it puts you in is the kind of company that it would be an absolute honor to stand with in the halls of eternity. All right. Now, I'll jump off the soapbox. I feel like I got that out of my system, but that needed to be said. When we come back from our break, among the things we're going to be covering today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the evil of coerced medicine. I don't know if you've heard this, but... um, Eric Peters just uh, published an article yesterday about how uh, for for some members of the military, mask mandates are back. Depending on where they're serving, they're being told, and anybody who comes on their post is being told, you have to wear a mask. And it kind of makes me wonder, are we we gearing up for another uh, mandate, another lockdown, another something like this? My gut says, probably. There are those who still believe, well, I've got the authority to do it, and when I snap my fingers and say, you must do this, you must. I don't think it's going to go the way that they think it is. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, free speech and permissive platforms. Got a great article. In fact, we'll start off with that next from Thomas L. Knapp. What's the difference between free speech and a permissive platform? I didn't know the answer until I read his uh, article on it, but uh, it turns out both of them are good things. But it's also pretty good that we understand the difference between the two. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank Garage Door Pros for being a sponsor of this program. That is my friend, Seth Schultes. He is... uh, He's a businessman, but he's also a guy who really believes in taking care of his customers. So if you or someone you know living in St. George or Cedar City, Mesquite or Colorado City down in that southwest corner of Utah, color country, if you need uh, installation, service or repair of garage doors, I hope that you'll do business with Garage Door Pros. You can go to their website at garagedoorprocervices.com or call them at 435-525-2773. Let's talk a little bit about uh, free speech and permissive platforms. 
Thomas L. Knapp uh, makes the, the, the distinction here by saying, since his acquisition of Twitter, Elon Musk has styled himself the very avatar of free speech, descending from on high to defend us against the forces of censorship. Now, he says, on the whole, I think he's sincere in his approach to the issue. I also think he's in error as to what precisely free speech means. Now, to be fair, Musk benefits from a great deal of support in his misunderstanding, even more from his opponents than from his supporters. Take, for example, Guardian columnist Nezreen Malik, who tells us that free speech is not simply about saying whatever you want, unchecked, but about negotiating complicated compromises for some speech to be free, other speech has to be limited. Oh, boy. Well, unsurprisingly, Thomas Knapp says Malik uh, wants speech she agrees with to be free and speech she disagrees with to be limited, with law as the instrument of limitation. Musk agrees. He says, by free speech, he tweeted on April 26th, I simply mean that which matches the law. I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they will ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, speech regulated by law, even law that embodies the will of the people, if there were such a thing, isn't free speech. Free speech is simply an absence, and that is the absence of the threats of force by law or otherwise which forbid or punish speech. Now, he says, I'm a big fan of free speech. The moral principle underlying it is that people aren't property, and their thoughts and expressions are thus no one else's to rightfully control. The practical value of it is that freedom to debate makes it possible for us to solve problems instead of just obeying orders. Now, he says, I'm also a fan of what Musk is actually defending, Twitter as a permissive platform. Just as your right to keep and bear arms imposes no obligation on my part to provide you with an AR-15 or let you use my backyard as a firing range, your right to free speech imposes no obligation on Elon Musk's part to provide you with a Twitter account or let you use his servers as your soapbox. He's indicated his intention to let pretty much anyone have a Twitter account and to let Twitter account holders say as much, or at least almost as much, as the law allows them to say. Now, Thomas Knapp says that's not free speech, but assuming he means it, it's about as close as he's allowed to get to free speech, and he deserves our thanks for it. A poke in the timeline with a sharp tweet is better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. I thought that was a really nice distinction. Tip of the hat to Thomas L. Knapp. I've got a link to his article in my show notes at the thebrianhideshow.com. All right, I'm going to shift gears now and talk about, I mentioned earlier that uh, mask mandates are back for some members of America's armed forces. And I came across an article on the Brownstone Institute's website from Dr. Aaron Curiati, The Evil of Coerced Medicine. This is just an adapted excerpt published recently in the Washington Times from his book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Dr. Cariotti says in their understandable enthusiasm to roll out the novel COVID vaccines as widely and quickly as possible in early 2021, the public health establishment succumbed to two dangerous temptations, propaganda and coercion. That their approach deployed these with the common good in mind, achieving herd immunity and with good intentions, ending the pandemic as quickly as possible, doesn't alter the fact that such approaches were deeply misguided and represented deeply disturbing trends in public policy. Public pronouncements in the name of science could not be questioned, and behavioral outcomes could be achieved by any means necessary. He says coercive COVID vaccination mandates rested on several unproven postulates, 
which mainstream opinion took to be axiomatic and unassailable. Number one, the vaccines were safe for everyone. Number two, the vaccines were necessary for everyone. Therefore, number three, any vaccine hesitancy is a public relations problem that must be overcome. The needle in every arm goal was set in advance. The only deliberation permitted was about the most efficient means toward this predetermined end. Any scientist, physician, or policymaker who broke ranks to question one or more of these axioms was at best a nuisance and at worst dangerous. Someone to be ignored as backward or dismissed as a threat to public health. People who asked inconvenient questions were labeled with the dismissive anti-vax epithet a term that functioned to exclude them from the realm of reasonable discourse. Some of the vaccine propaganda would have been laughable if it weren't so clearly displaying sanctimonious contempt for its audience. Consider a televised public service announcement from Ohio's Department of Health. A friendly immunologist clears up misinformation about what's in a COVID vaccine by explaining there are just as few simple ingredients, water, sugar, salt, fat, and most importantly, a building block for protein. That's less stuff than a candy bar or can of pop. Now, this absurd message suggests that vaccine risks are no different from the risks of eating a candy bar or drinking a soda. Clearly, government-sponsored misinformation, if that word means anything. But Dr. Cariotti says the condescension on display also tells you all you need to know about what Ohio's public health officials think of the intelligence of the average citizen. Aside from what was said, the most egregious form of propaganda was the vaccine-related information that was deliberately withheld or de-emphasized. As mentioned earlier, the New York Times reported in February 2022, two full years into the pandemic, the agency leading the country's response to the public health emergency, the CDC, has only published a tiny fraction of the data it has collected. For example, when the agency published the first significant data on the effectiveness of boosters in adults younger than 65, it left out the numbers for a huge portion of that population, 18 to 49-year-olds, the group least likely to benefit from extra shots. The CDC's stated reason for withholding much of its data was that it did not want to increase vaccine hesitancy. The result was messaging from public health officials that sounded indistinguishable from the marketing departments of Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Granted, public health communication must be simplified for broad consumption, but there's a key difference between simplifying information for a layperson and dumbing it down to manipulate the masses or deliberately suppressing information that might undermine a predetermined public policy. This was not public education, but a manipulative effort at behavioral control in the most precise meaning of the term, it was propaganda. Large swaths of the public who were, not, who were not hypnotized by the repetition of memes could sense, even if they couldn't explain, that they were subjected to manipulation. As the vaccine rates approached 50% in the United States, vaccine updates slowed by April 2021. Reports began to emerge of serious side effects and studies from Israel, which started its mass vaccination campaign before the U.S., suggested that vaccine efficacy waned rapidly. Public health efforts pivoted from propaganda to heavy-handed nudges and bribes. Several states entered vaccinated citizens into lotteries, awarding cash prizes of a million dollars or more. Other states and cities launched promotions for vaccination, ranging from free beer in New Jersey to raffles for full-ride college scholarships in New York and Ohio to a free marijuana joint in Washington for those who took the jab. The latter brought to you naturally by people who sincerely care about your health. And when these nudges didn't work, officials simply mandated the vaccines with severe penalties for those who declined. 
Dr. Cariotti says, as my own institution, the University of California, prepared to issue its vaccine mandate, I argued publicly in the pages of the Wall Street Journal in June of 2021 that university vaccine mandates violated foundational principles of medical ethics, including the principle of informed consent. And he says, although the minimal conditions for justifying vaccine mandates were never close to being met, institutions embraced these misguided policies with little meaningful public discussion and no debate. Sounds like I need to get my hands on a copy of Dr. Aaron Cariotti's book, The New Abnormal and the Rise of the Biomedical State, Security State, that is. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a reminder, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. It's always a good time to be just a little more prepared and good long-term 25-year-plus shelf storage, food storage. That would be a good thing to have on hand, you know, in case a crisis comes up. Not that there's any crises looming out there. Got a couple of different things I'd like to touch on in this segment here. Uh, First and foremost, I, I watch as little of popular culture as possible. And, you know, there was a time where it was like, okay, old man yells at cloud, you know, kind of thing. But now I just find that really popular culture has very little to offer me. And occasionally, you know, I, I will see my kids binging on Criminal Minds or something else on Hulu. And it always strikes me that the advertising has it's become very woke. I mean, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of inclusiveness, wink, wink, if you get my, my drift, But uh, here's the thing that really kind of blows me away. When you get really into the entertainment culture, it's pretty clear that there's some dark, dark stuff taking place. I mean, it used to be just conspiracy theorists believed, oh, yes, the Satan-worshipping pedophiles are, you know, trying to pull the levers of power today in our world. That used to sound like a conspiracy theory. Today, I'm not so sure that they weren't right, particularly when you look at the top levels of politics and the entertainment industry. In fact, it's looking more and more like the truth these days. Case in point, I don't know if you saw Balenciaga's child porn advocacy, the ads for, uh, you know, I think it's children's clothing, but the, the weird imagery. Let me share with you some thoughts here from an article by Mark Judge and, and how unable to outrage the American middle class with modern art, the left is descending into nihilism and pornography. He says the luxury fashion brand Balenciaga is under fire due to an ad campaign that shows a child model standing with a teddy bear wearing black leather and chains. In other words, BDSM apparel. Now, people are outraged and rightly so, but the episode points to a larger problem, and that is the way the left has embraced violent, pornographic, and disturbing art. Remember the Podesta art collection? In 2016, it was revealed that the art collection of DNC bigwigs Tony and John Podesta was bizarre and really disturbing. The Podesta's collection contained, as critic J. My- or Michael J. Pierce described it, weird genetically mutated piggy children, sculptures, and creepy photographs of men with children running away. People were shocked to learn that this pillar of the Democratic Party owned a sculpture of a decapitated naked woman 
whose pose closely resembled a, po a photo rather, of one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims. Another installation in Podesta's home included hyper-real sculpted human or hybrid human and pig figures, including piglet children. Pierce goes on, suddenly, a powerful perception of a sick relationship between left-wing politics, avant-garde art, and pedophilia was established by media outlets covering the story. The stuff offended both mainstream and left-wing Democrats. Intersectional Democratic Party members were horrified that the aesthetic taste of Podesta, one of their elite leaders, could include such offensive things. Party leaders seeking the middle-class vote was appalled, were appalled rather at the offense to bourgeois values. The sculpture of the beheaded woman clearly offended feminist factions. So Pierce saw this disgusting display as one factor in the undermining of liberalism as the historical champions of great and modernist art. The other was how the left have become Philistines. Pierce says, instead of supporting art, left-wing intersectional, intersectional activists have become busy iconoclasts, calling for destruction of a painting of Emmett Till, throwing paint at public sculptures of of Columbus and Civil War monuments, spray-painting slogans onto the iconic Unconditional Surrender statue in Sarasota. There's, no, there's nothing particularly new or exciting about iconoclasm, but it is unusual that the political motivation of these activists is leftist, because supporting artistic freedom of speech has been the default position of the American left since the Second World War. Now, back to Mr. Judge's column. He says, for a fuller idea of how the modern left became enemies of art, an article Pierce published in 2019 is helpful. Another blow, writes Pierce, was tied to the world-changing catastrophe of 9-11. The Academy was uncomfortable with the avant-garde's failure to address multiculturalism, and the federal government was uncomfortable with avant-garde obscenity. People's disgust with the art community's embrace of shock art came to a peak when the composer Stockhausen claimed the 9-11 attacks on our Twin Towers as the greatest artwork that ever existed in the entire cosmos. Wow. In his book, the, Mo the Triumph of Modernism, the great art critic Hilton Kramer argues that when modernism emerged in the 20th century, the more conservative middle class embraced it. Housewives and normal Joes liked Picasso, Jackson Pollock, Helen Frankenthaler, uh, also Odd Nedrum and Ed Alex Katz, rather. Kramer, one critic observed, insisted on modernism as an essential component of bourgeois culture. He admires modern art and has less patience for the artworks made after modernism, which he tends to interpret in terms of decline or degeneration. Contemplating Matisse, Kramer observed, it's hard to believe that we shall ever again witness anything like it now or in the foreseeable future. Today, instead, we endure the nihilistic imperatives of the postmodernist scam. Bingo! Faced with the fact that those dumb, racist, hayseed Americans actually understood and enjoyed modern art, the left retreated to nihilism, censorship, wokeness, and provocations that de degenerated into pornography. Pop music critics are setting parameters on what musicians can record. The German artist Jess DeWalls was briefly canceled by the Royal Academy, which subsequently apologized after trans activists complained about a 2019 Royal Academy essay, or 2019 essay, rather, in which DeWalls argued the intolerance of the LGBT community has made it impossible to call an adult human female a woman or to criticize the LGBT community. In her essay, Jess DeWalls perceptively compared the current climate produced by the crazy left to the life she lived as a child under the German Stasi. Even your closest friends, or so we were told, could turn out to be working for the Stasi. 
The East German State Security Service, which has been described as one of the most effective and repressive intelligence and secret police agencies ever to have existed. Everyone may have been equal, but we certainly weren't free to think and do what we wanted. Certain TV programs from the West were off limits, as was anything not in the communist spirit. If you were found to be guilty of wrong think, the consequences could be grave, including prison sentences or worse. Now, if you, if you know little of East Germany, I highly recommend watching The Lives of Others and Goodbye Lenin, both incredible films that will give you a good taste of what life was like then. So Mark Judge concludes, Balenciaga's all latest is all too typical of the attempted destruction of great Western art at the hands of our modern Philistines. The fashion company has taken it so far that they have no defenders left except maybe the Podestas. Now, look, I'm not into the modern art scene, so a lot of those artists that he cites here, I'm, you know, they're, they're just not on my frame of reference. But when you look at popular culture, especially in the music industry, some of the symbolism and some of the, uh, especially the occultic symbolism that seems to be coming, you know, front and center would seem to indicate that, uh, you know, there, there's a pretty dark dynamic behind that entire industry. And that's not to say we should be burning records then, okay? I'm not, I'm not advocating, you know, Tipper Gore type censorship. But here's what I am advocating. We've got to be careful about the kind of things that we consume. In fact, we've got to be careful about the kind of things that we allow our children to consume. Now, I have grown up kids, some of whom really like, you know, scary movies. They like, you know, horror films. They like slasher movies and whatnot. And I remember a time in my life, I think it was about the time Hellraiser came out, that, you know, that was that was pretty in vogue to go and, and you know, see these uh, horrific, uh, you know, dark films. Something I have learned in that time, and I, I'm not telling you, you have to adopt this, but just in my own experience, there's enough darkness out there that I think it behooves us to be careful about how much darkness we willingly invite into our lives. Does that make sense? In, in other words, there, there is some darkness that's always out there, you know, lurking. And it's not going to force itself on us. It's the kind of darkness that has to be invited in. And sometimes we do that uh, in, in ways that we don't uh, readily, you know, recognize. I believe sitting down and watching a movie could be one of those ways. If you've ever watched a show that just left you feeling creepy for hours afterward, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go on a, you know, media or uh, an entertainment fast. But I know this, the longer you're away from television, especially if you take a good long break and you're, you know, out for a couple of weeks, when you come back, it's pretty noticeable how shocking some of the content is. And it's not because in your absence from this, you know, particular cultural influence, you know, you became, you know, some suddenly a prude. I tend to think it's because, uh, well, I'll just say it. I think it's because our spiritual sensitivity increases during those times when we're not plugged in and not numbed to what's being broadcast at us. So I'm not trying to offer some, you know, hard and fast, burn your CV, your CDs or, you know, go throw your TV out or shoot it or something. I'm just saying it, they may be portals to bringing things into our life that really aren't that uplifting or enlightening. So maybe we should use some discretion. This is 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got a couple articles I want to share here in this final segment. And I know that uh, there's a lot of interest still, you know, especially on the part of the media and and politicians about January 6th. And, of course, that's been uh, peaked a little bit uh, here over the the last uh, few days because a couple of members of Oath Keepers were convicted of seditious conspiracy by a Washington, D.C. jury. Now, why do I say by a Washington, D.C. jury? Because I believe that a Washington, D.C. jury is probably going to come to a different conclusion than a jury found in oh, I don't know, the real world. In other words, life outside the Beltway. Jacob Hornberger has a great column that I'm going to include in today's show notes. January 6th was not a seditious conspiracy. Now, he says it's a shame that a course in logic is not offered in law school. If it was, maybe, just maybe, attorney Harry Littman would not have written an op-ed titled A Jury Delivers the Truth About January 6th. It was a seditious conspiracy, which appeared in yesterday's Los Angeles Times. In his article, Littman, a former U.S. attorney and deputy attorney general, claims that the recent federal conviction of Oath Keepers leaders Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs for seditious conspiracy will go a long way toward defining the January 6, 2021 Capitol melee once and for all as a heinous crime orchestrated by enemies of democracy. Wow. Talk about fulminations. Jacob Hornberger says, well, actually, it does no such thing. In fact, he says, my hunch is that Littman's prosecutorial mindset is clouding his thinking. The jury's verdict of seditious conspiracy applies only to Rhodes and Meggs, not to anyone else. In fact, in the same trial, the jury acquitted other defendants of seditious conspiracy and instead convicted them of the lesser charge of obstructing a government proceeding. Simply because two people are convicted of seditious conspiracy doesn't mean that the thousands of other people involved in the Capitol protest are also guilty of seditious conspiracy. The convictions apply only to the people who were convicted, not to the thousands of other people who aren't convicted. In other words, you can have a situation where thousands of people have no intention whatsoever of committing seditious conspiracy and who are simply protesting some governmental action. At the same time and in that same situation, you can have two people who are conspiring to commit sedition. Under the law, the fact that those two people are conspiring to commit sedition doesn't convert the thousands of other people into people who are also conspiring to commit sedition. You follow his logic here? If the law permitted feds to convict innocent people in that manner, then everyone involved in the January 6th protest would have been charged with seditious conspiracy and convicted. The fact that federal prosecutors did not charge most of the protesters with seditious conspiracy and the fact that the jury acquitted some of the defendants in the recent sedition case of of seditious conspiracy demonstrate the legal principle that only those who are guilty of a crime should be prosecuted and convicted of the crime. Now, he says Littman also reveals his deeply set prosecutorial mindset by suggesting that other people who are still facing trial for the January 6th event may want to think hard about pleading guilty and offering to cooperate with the government investigation. Jacob Hornberger says, really? But what if they're innocent, Littman? Do you still think they should think hard about pleading guilty? As a criminal defense attorney, would you permit a client in the January 6th event to plead guilty knowing that he was claiming to be innocent? Or are you saying that your client would automatically be guilty regardless of what he claimed 
simply because Rhodes and Meggs were convicted of seditious conspiracy. Moreover, what's wrong with going to trial? Isn't that the person's right? Well, not exactly. Littman knows that it's long-established policy in the federal courts to hit people who go to trial and are convicted with higher sentences than those who simply plead guilty. In other words, in the federal court system, <clears throat> you have a right to a jury trial. But if you exercise it and lose, you are going to receive a double penalty for making those federal judges and federal prosecutors work for their generous tax-funded salaries. He's right, by the way. How do the feds get 97% conviction rate? Yeah, they do plea deals. And that's, one of the le- that's some of the leverage they use. Because if you don't take this deal, then uh, if we do end up convicting you, we're going to throw everything we have at you. This is why many of us never thought that the Bundys would ever see light of day again. And yet they did. They continue to live as free people today. Against all odds. So, Jacob Hornberger says the fact that two people are convicted of seditious conspiracy doesn't mean that everyone else involved in the January 6th protest is guilty of seditious conspiracy, or for that matter, any other crime. Moreover, people who are claiming to be innocent should never be encouraged or permitted to plead guilty. Everyone has the right of trial by jury and should never be punished for exercising that right. Amen. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely correct. All right, one final note, and this is kind of a hot-button issue right now, but the uh, Federal uh, Respect for Marriage Act, I believe, has, has passed another uh, hurdle. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, to hear social justice types tell it, well, marriage was an invention of the state. Now, anyone who's actually studied history knows that's not the case. Marriage licenses did not exist for most of human history. And in fact, when they were introduced, they were introduced as a tool to punish people who didn't belong to the right religion. Oh, well, you're a, you're a Catholic or you're a Protestant? Well, you know, the, the, the government, which was whatever, you know, the opposite was, they don't recognize your marriage. Therefore, your children have no right of inheritance because under the law, they're considered bastards. See how that works? It was also used to prevent, uh, what's the term? Misogynation, you know? intermarriage between races. So Ryan McMacken has a great article on how the state seized control of marriage. He says both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives are expected to pass new same-sex marriage legislation in the coming days. And this is expected to codify what's already a de facto law in the U.S. under the Supreme Court's ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges. The legislation further solidifies federal law stating that states are required to recognize same-sex marriages that are legal in other U.S. member states. The legislation also ensures that same-sex spouses will continue to be eligible for federal benefits through programs like Medicare and Social Security. Now, the legislation does not mandate that each state government establish its own provisions for same-sex unions, however. He says, in the year 2021, there's really not anything remarkable about this in the minds of most people. To most modern thinking, marriage is just another thing that's to be regulated and modified according to the whims of a civil government's lawmakers and judges. Even among those who think there ought not be any federal role in marriage legislation, very few dispute that governments of the member states themselves, or foreign national governments for that matter, can rightfully exercise immense legislative authority over the regulation of marriage. The only disagreement is how is often over how government officials ought to regulate marriage and to what ends. Now, historically, he says the government was very uninvolved in marriage. 
And he says, the only dissenters to this consensus appear to be some libertarians like Ron Paul. For example, in 2012, Paul told a rally audience, I'd like to see all governments out of the marriage question. I don't think it's a state decision. I think it's a religious function. These comments followed earlier comments from Paul contending that biblically and historic, historically, rather, government was very uninvolved in marriage. Now, Paul is right in saying that marriage historically had often been a matter for religious authorities instead of agents of the civil governments. Yet, given the rise of the modern sovereign state, which is currently the ultimate legal authority on virtually all matters, it has become difficult to even imagine the particulars of historical reality to which Paul refers. Nonetheless, state regulation of marriage and the ensuing secularization of marriage that followed is a historical development that was part of the larger trend toward expansion and consolidation of state power that began in the late Middle Ages. It was during this period that states gradually came to exercise monopolistic authority over all of society's institutions, including the towns, the nobility, and even the monarchies themselves. Also brought under the state's power were churches and state control of marriage, was one of the uh, important components of this. State control of marriage, that we now consider to be so normal, was just one aspect of the state building that set the stage for our modern era of nearly untrammeled state power. Now, he goes into some more historical context here, and I'm going to kind of cut to the chase. It's a fairly lengthy essay. But the bottom line is this. Secularization finally did occur in the 17th and 18th century with the advent of the so-called Enlightenment. Government elites, especially the German-speaking on the German-speaking continent, began to abandon Christian ideals altogether, and insisted that law be based only on reason. Basically, this illuminated all superpositive guidelines for and binding limits on human marriage legislation, and it gave state rulers even more freedom to fashion marriage in a way most convenient to them. Secularization of marriage laws finally became widespread in the 19th century, and marriage policy from then on became whatever policy was viewed as politically prudent, utilitarian, or expedient. Kind of describes where we are today, right? Today, Ryan McMacken says the nature of marriage has been so divorced from its private religious aspects as to be thoroughly malleable in accordance with purely secular, legal, political, and legislative considerations. The catalyst for all this, however, remains with the legislative, I'm sorry, with the revolutionary institutional changes that changed marriage from a matter of private agreements within a religious institution into a public matter defined and regulated by an increasingly powerful state. You know what the big lesson is here? Anytime you invite the government to be the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong in this particular question, it becomes a political issue and it becomes a political football and it becomes the source of yet another power struggle. This is The Brian Hyde Show.